So there's an interesting piece for me. I think we're always trying to help the best get better. I think mm -hmm. that's what all of us probably are quite passionate about. How do we use our insight, our wisdom? I'll speak for myself. How, do, how can I contribute to those who are already really talented mm -hmm. to become even better? That's what really truly motivates me. And I don't think that changes. I think what has changed is how obvious it is to the external world what's mm -hmm. been going on to do that because we're now highly competitive, we're highly professional, we're competing against the Russians or the Chinese or the Australians who want to know what we're doing. Well, hello to you all and welcome to the Supporting Champions podcast with me, Steve Ingham. Now, the Supporting Champions podcast is all about exploring the dynamics of high performance with people who have been there and done it, people who've supported others to succeed or have explored performance concepts in real depth. I'm joined today by Jamie Pringle, academic, applied physiologist and innovator from Performance Science Distillery, and Rosie Mays, former international netball player, coach, scientist, and now director of the EB Centre. <laughs> so we're going to talk through the system of British sport, why it's been so successful, some of the, the key landmarks over the years, and what we might be able to take away from the journey of the development of British sport over the last 20, maybe 30 years or so. Um, so let's have a little think. What, what are the key differentiators? What are the key facts that uh, have made Britain so successful? So it's been the first country to win more medals after a home games. Uh, it's been the first country to win more medals at five successive Olympics. Um, and at, at its last games, at the Rio 26 games it won more medals than in more sports than any other country so it might not have won more medals than the US but it won more medals in more sports so there's a, there's a performance across the piece there yeah. that, that's uh, that's starting to and, and who knows what's going to happen for, for Tokyo the, the gold the gold medal target is to try and get more again at the Tokyo games having succeeded that um, in, in the 2016 games so that's it's going to keep keep pushing and pushing and harder, and the, the Japanese will be, I'm sure, uh, putting their best best foot forward. So, um, Rosie, I'm keen to find out kind of where it all started. What was your perspective as one of the real pioneers of how it all got going? Well, I'm smiling because just in your telling that story, I was thinking I feel so proud to be part of the British system and to to have had some influence in it somewhere. I think for all of us, we've mm. somewhere touched something that's made a difference, even though we may not have realised it. I thought time. I was going to say, because you're old, <laughs> we've had so much experience. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. What do you think? I'm getting to that for you. Yeah. Okay. yeah, and when you set out, you don't even know what it's going to look like in 20, 30 years. Where did I start? Um, at Loughborough, where it was really scientific sports science. It wasn't applied sports science at that time. So I think the opportunity somewhere along the way that the British Association of Sports Scientists became the British Association of Exercise 
and sport, is it? Bass became bases, being right in amongst that. The NCF set up at the same time, the National Coaching Foundation. So I think in the 80s, there was this move towards a professionalisation mm-hmm. of sport with a small p, not realising the investment that Wood was going to go into it, but the recognition of how do we ensure our coaches are better at what they do mm-hmm. and how do we ensure that we support the athletes yeah. uh, in the way that we should do. And I, somehow that, that it was constellating that things were aligning at that time and that resources then went into the education of the coaches at the same time that it began to go into the into the support. Are you seeing that now from from a hindsight perspective when you look back at that? Because there's a bit of a push and there's a bit of a pull. You know, the pull might be that there are now systems of, you know, funding and development for coaches and for athletes and for scientists and so on. That might be the pull and then the push has come from people meeting that need. Because in some cases, I think when you look back, some of the push came before the pull. Some of the push was around, well, now we can create undergraduate courses in sport and exercise science and now we're turning out people who understand this area better than some of them going into being good coaches. And so they're now pulling and wanting more of that. I just think it's, you know, is this a chicken and egg kind of thing? It's what actually did come first. And it's only by looking back at it now that we can actually go and you map it out. Yeah. That's been, I can see a real sort of starting point for what we see now, for the system, the people in that system, and for the, the culture as well. If you root it all the way back, those are the things that kind of started it. But it's only in hindsight you yeah. see that. I, I, I'm, and as you're talking, I'm thinking performers always want to get better. So you always want to break the four-minute mile when the four-minute mile is there yeah. to be broken. So I think the performers have always stri- striven for getting better. And I think slowly but surely, this would just be my perspective, resources have come in behind that mm. and created a, the conditions for it to work. So I go back to the Creating Champions project years ago and interviewing uh, Chris Boardman and Peter Keane. And you really got the sense of Chris was just looking for whatever he could get to make him go faster Mm -hmm. on his bike. And Peter came in with his scientific brilliance and his passion for cycling anyway and already working with, with Chris, that there was a constellation again of that that showed this is just what can happen. And it takes me back to thinking about one of the first bases conferences after Chris had won a medal at one of the early games and Peter Keane being acknowledged it publicly mm-hmm. for his part in that medal. And I have no idea what year that would have been, but it was, I could remember Peter sitting at the back of the auditorium <laughs> and it being acknowledged of his part in that. And that was, that was really early. That was Coach of the Year, he won it in 92, I think. Yeah. Um, yes, probably. Yeah. So you were one of two sports scientists alongside Peter Keane. I'm, I'm, I'm quite proud. I was one of ten full-time <laughs> sports scientists in 1996. I had, actually hadn't increased that much yeah. over four years. Yeah. What structure was in place in, in the late 80s, early 90s? Very little. I happened to be at Loughborough at the time. Uh, Somewhere along the way, Loughborough must have been talking to the, the Rugby Football Union about sports science support. Some funding became available for a half-time scientist. So I, I did half-time with the National Coaching Foundation at the same time. Mm-hmm. And Peter had already worked, I think, a year with, with Chris. So he had worked free 
and then got mm. funding and I got we got funding for me to work in the, the rugby football union as a sports scientist and we were the first two I think that were funded and it must have come from sports council the funding of those two mm. positions before then the sports science and education program SSEP I think came into yeah. into being mm. uh, and and it was I had no idea what the decision making had happened be, behind that I was the scientist who someone said there's a position here and working with Rex Hazeldean at Loughborough who had the links mm. with rugby and was already working and had good relationships I think within the RFU uh, that position became available. Tom McNabb, who was the who was a, the writer, was the fitness advisor in rugby. So getting them doing the the running. He was a he was an athletics coach. Oh, okay. uh, Flanagan's Run was his book. So there's a book to long gone. So mm. I think he did a lot of athletics coaching, and he was brought in by rugby somewhere along the way, and then they brought the science in behind him. And, uh, and that's where it was started for me. And at the time, you, you don't know. Yeah. You don't know where the path is going to go. So it was quite, a, quite an organic looking for specialists who could contribute in the different areas. There was no, there was no it doesn't sound like a system in place as such, but that would have been maybe, what, eight years or so before probably one of the biggest pivot moments, the 96 games, mm-hmm. where it really started to, to accelerate and, and spur on. But probably eight years or so of building up and creating that network of relationships and people who could contribute and small part-time positions yes. that ha- actually established yeah. a network. Yeah, yeah. And with Sarah Rowell, I remember coordinating mm. the sports science specialists from around the country and us all coming together for meetings about what we were doing. Mm. And, um, you know, and so some of those characters... You know, still very much in existence in the sports science world. They are, and I think you know. You mentioned about Peter and, and Chris Boardman at that time, and I, that made a big impression on me. My uh, as a student, as an undergraduate student, that I would probably say was one of the instigators of why I looked at sport and exercise science as a as an interesting study mm-hmm. option, and stuck around it because that you know back in 1992 and around that time, and leading into um, Boardman's hour record and so on. You know, as a physiologist, you look at those things. You think these these are you know, defining factors of performance is the physiology and that's and the nutrition and so on. And I was just thinking as you were talking there that you know the that story back then, if that story was told now, it would still be live. It would still be fresh. Mm-hmm. It would still have aspects to it that people could very quickly relate to right now, in terms of a systematic approach, a performance-driven approach. What defines your performance, right? It's this, this, and this. Mm-hmm. Let's work on this area. Let's understand more about this area. And so I think that story, if you know, if Peter or Chris told that, would be absolutely ripe right now. But what I'm interested in is, you know, he might have been a bit of a lone voice back then mm-hmm. to, in the high-performance yes. world. Mm-hmm. I don't think that message has changed, but the system and the culture around it has. And the other people who are now shouting the same messages, and as you say, you, you know what some of the groundwork, some of the foundations that were laid back then, are now still being very strongly called upon today. I think there's um, there's something about that special um, innovative space where you're creating something out of nothing that that is quite special and and might be lost and needs to be conjured when you've got sustained success and you've got all the resources and you've got the you've got all the services and technology available, you don't, perhaps don't look as sharply uh, for the breakthrough. Yeah. Um, 
you know, the sort of innovation coming from famine in some ways that you're, that you, you've got to create it, um, but you're extremely prioritised on what you're chasing down because you can't, you can't just have everything and pour more and more services in. So are those examples from back then, 20, 25 years ago, they're just as relevant, but they're stark because there wasn't either at that time a great deal of that going on. So they look stark, they look you know, really quite unique and interesting. But there's still just as many of those good examples going on and there have been in the last 25 years. But because more and more of that, and the system now allows us to do that by design, do they actually don't get recognised? Well, I think if, if you've got sports that are becoming increasingly dependent upon breakthroughs in technologies such as aerodynamics for cycling, people are going to be able to copy that. And so sure. you're going to have to become even more innovative in your approach or your capability to fail fast, learn. And, and that could be the competitive edge in the future of, of being able to mm. pick the pieces out. That would have been relevant in the um, pre funding phases, it would have been relevant in that we've got funding, we don't know what to do with it phases, yeah. and I think will be increasingly relevant going forward. Yeah. So there's an interesting piece for me, I think we're always trying to help the best get better, I think mm. that's what all of us probably are quite passionate about, how do we use our insight, our wisdom, I'll speak for myself, how, do, how can I contribute to those who are already really talented mm. to become even better? That's what really truly motivates me. And I don't think that changes. I think what has changed is how obvious it is to the external world what's mm -hmm. been going on to do that because we're now highly competitive, we're highly professional, we're competing against the Russians or the Chinese or the Australians who want to know what we're doing. One of the early sports that I remember listening into was yachting and how quiet they kept about all their innovations mm. because they simply didn't want the rest of the world to know. Yeah. So I, I suspect, as a person who's sort of gravitated more outside of sports science now, I suspect there's lots I don't know about now because we don't want the opposition to know about Absolutely. it. Absolutely. Yeah. And in that way, you won't get the figural people mm. standing out in the way that Peter did way back then. Mm because uh, yeah. it's, a diff it's a different profession. He had, to, he had to create the argument to justify the investment yeah. uh, at different yeah. phases. Yes. But I, you know, the examples you gave there, cycling, aerodynamics and yachting, they're quite tangible things. You know, yeah. you, you, you know you've got a nice <clears throat> carbon fibre disc wheel that's better, it's more round. Mm. That's the French might argue, <laughs> yes. um, or you've got a, you know, a sail um, on the yacht or, or something that's more tangible. As working in sort of the human side of things, you're dealing with more around kind of concepts and ideas than your actual physical pieces of yeah. equipment. Well, and that getting innovation there is more about the thinking and about the way of doing some training, for example, is always going to be the big thing. You know, how do you train in a more effective way and get better adaptation? There isn't something that you can just pull off the shelf and say, yeah. do that. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the big accelerators has got to be sort of gone from the amateur to professional phase from 1996, where lottery funding and, and government level funding just didn't happen. It wasn't, you, know, you, might, you might get some sponsorship for the Olympic Association to send the team with some good kit, but that was it before then. So just accelerating the, the system, allowing athletes and coaches to be training and working full time, and that's got to 
benefit the athlete to, from a rest and recovery point of view? Yeah, I think so. And I think, you know, as you were talking, Rosie, I think both of you were talking there about those kind of examples that maybe the, some of the incremental changes that have changed, changed the system, the culture which those athletes operate in, and some of the big step changes that have happened when you've seen people have done th things differently. And I can think, we can think of some in the human physiology area that's around training, the uh, practice of um, how that's happened. But it, it, you know, it strikes me, you can, we can only really recognise these things in hindsight. And actually the yeah. biggest lessons in hindsight when you look back are where, and the biggest learning episodes of where you've had failure, where you've actually something that hasn't worked. Well, I wondered, looking at the 1996 results in depth, what everyone remembers is Steve Redgrave, Matt Pinter, one gold medal, what shame it is with 36 on the medal table, just above Armenia. I mean, it's, it, wasn't, it wasn't the finest Olympic performance, but there were, there were 13 silvers, I think. There were 15 medals overall. Right. So, so you had Steve Backley, yeah. you had Jonathan Edwards, who was world record holder at the time. You had a lot of people who just missed. Yeah. It just didn't quite work out. And I'm sure there were probably reasons why, and also that the system might increase the probability of some of those successes converting to golds now. Um, yes. But I think that any scrutiny that we now apply to results, such as the number of top eight finishes, probably would have looked all right then. And but so those having those a bad are, result those would have been good. metrics that are headlines. I mean, yeah. when you're working behind the scenes, as a scientist might do, what you see is the athlete who hasn't progressed from that year compared to the previous year because they're tired, because not overtrained necessarily, but because their training hasn't yeah. worked effectively. So the learning that you can have from that, you think, you know, you didn't make it to your medal, but you know, you didn't get to the start line in the best possible shape. And my job is not uh, is not winning the medal for you. It's uh, as you said, it's increasing the probability of your success through mm. that, all the various things you can do with that athlete and their coach. But I think just it just strikes me that there's, we can put the headlines on it of medals and so on, but actually it's behind the scenes when you say, have we been able to allow this athlete and their coach or this group of athletes, this team, mm. have more probability of, of doing their thing? So post-1996, there was an injection of money and there was an immediate return, 10th on the medal table at the Sydney Games, um, 10 gold medals I think it was. So there's an increase there just from just from being able to fund the system. Um, but my memory of though at the sort of late nineties was that it wasn't particularly focused. It, it just sort of injected uh, the professionalization, got people moving as much as anything. I was still doing treadmill tests to exhaustion on shot putters, thinking, this isn't right. <laughs> um, they didn't like you for that. No, they didn't. <laughs> Maybe it tested my powers of persuasion. Since I get off this treadmill, I'm gonna <laughs> put him out the window. <laughs> Some reason they did it. I mean, they thought, you know, but that that was probably science gone wrong. Where you're just going, oh, let's let's just test these extreme specimens and see what see what comes out. Let's just yeah. throw some measurement at people oh. rather than actually pseudoscience. Oh yeah, or there could be the sort of Hawthorne effect of I'm getting some special treatment. Mm. Um, that that experience makes me think more critically about what I'm doing, maybe. Write that um, down, the Hawthorne effect. That's an interesting concept. You can have a concept. bit of Hawthorne. Yeah, it's an interesting okay. concept in itself. Um, I'm not convinced it was particularly focused well, and effective. Yeah, though. and I'm, as I'm listening into that, I'm thinking of 
the, the sports science in its development, if it were a human being, you know, in those early days, it was baby. You know, we didn't know what sports science could do. We didn't know how it could be applied to human performance or the performance of humans. You know, we, we didn't know what that was, and it's taken time. It's like a startup company. Sometimes it takes you time to analogy. grow up. Mm. And so, go on. Where in that baby to adulthood to, to death, um, <laughs> do you think we are now? Are we still a gangly teenager? I think, I think the British system now has worked out the component parts that are needed to create elite performance. And I think we've accelerated. I think there was a, an acceleration of learning and investment helped that. And it enabled the scientists, the coaches, the, the politicians, the bureaucrats, all of them, to, to do, I think, what most countries, I make this assumption, that if we are good at sport, we're on the world stage, we will be recognised mm. as a significant mm. player on the global stage mm. at something. So I think that most definitely will have accelerated something somewhere that said we can show a dominance here if we get our brains and our money and everything aligned. But you don't know that mm. early days because you don't, you don't know what this young child is going to turn into or what their capabilities are. <laughs> so if, uh, if 96 uh, and John Major's government injecting more money in, if that was getting the child walking, yeah. that was allowing it to take yeah. those first baby steps, um, I, I think perhaps my reflection of the early noughties, 2000, <laughs> 2001, when there was a, a, an influx of, of staff from Australia, actually, and really helped mm. to, to help the system get up to speed. But, and so that, that could be systematic ways of funding, or it could be coach education or staff development, uh, athlete training. Um, but I, I wonder, actually, whether that phase was the baby learning to say no. <laughs> or I'm finding my own voice, yeah. and I'm starting to create my own identity yeah. by saying... That's interesting that you did that in Australia, but we're probably going to craft our own way of doing it. Yeah. So I'm going to say no for the first time. Thank you very much. But here's our other idea about what I'm quite interested in. Yeah. Mm. Um, the, the other obvious accelerator is, is July the 6th, because it was obviously the day before July the 7th, yes. which was a, a dark day, 2005, of getting the, the home games. Yeah. And 12 years ago. 12 years ago. Um, the home games was a real accelerator. I mm. remember thinking, wow, that's so incredible. Oh my God, we've got, the guy, we've got our home games in seven years. That's all we've got time for in this episode. My discussion with Jamie and Rosie will continue next time when we'll be exploring how the home games gave the UK system focus. You can follow us on Twitter at Jamie Pringle at rosiemays49, at ingham underscore steve, and at support underscore champs. And don't forget to subscribe on YouTube, iTunes, and through the website supportingchampions.co.uk. And we'll see you next time.